This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Thank you for joining me again. I'm especially honored and privileged to have as a guest today Elaine Taylor Klaus. We'll be discussing basically parenting and raising complex kids with an emphasis on girls with inattentive ADHD and along the autism spectrum. Elaine is the co-founder of Impact Parents, which has a unique online parent coaching group approach, and now they have many other um, kind of subtopic, specialized topic things that they present. She has written three books. The latest is The Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids, and I will say it's absolutely incredibly well-written book looking at many details at every age on this real challenging subject. Elaine is an author, educated, educator, (laughs) master certified coach with an emphasis on neurodiversity and one of her most important credentials is she is a member of a family of ADHD plus plus, family of five, her three children, husband, and herself. Elaine, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It is always a pleasure to come join you for for stimulating conversation. Thank you for having me. So um, we're going to look at a a very complex topic, Um, a lot of of emphasis, I guess, new and appropriate uh, emphasis in terms of articles, both professionally and also uh, in some of the journals through organizations such as the magazine Attention, um, which is published by Chad. And this is getting to be a more refined area to look at, but it's still got its nebulous parts. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's look at, at first starting at inattentive ADHD, how that may differ girls and boys, but particularly differs from the hyperactive. My clinical experience is that kids who are hyperactive, whether it be boys or girls, are pretty easy to see by preschool, certainly early elementary school. They're flitting from one thing to another. They have a hard time sitting down, sitting still. They're interrupting. Uh, They're getting up and and moving around. Whereas the ones with inattentive ADHD, you don't see the outward behaviors other than the teacher may realize you don't have the slightest idea of what we're doing right now, do you? Uh, We're having to 
redirect a task or see kids daydreaming in somewhere else. Um, what kinds of things do parents see as far as what turns out to be inattentive ADHD? You know, what, what came up as I heard you describing that was that kids who have hyperactive ADHD tend to be in some way disruptive, whether it's mm. in a school environment or in a home environment. It, you have to deal with them. You have to manage them. You have to redirect them. It's, you know, asking them to sit down, sit in your seat, stop talking, mm -hmm. whatever. They get your attention. Whereas kids with inattentive ADHD actually tend to be the opposite. They can fly under the radar. They can go, they're almost mm -hmm. disconnected. And, you know, in, in a school environment, they're staring out the window and it's not till you figure out they haven't absorbed it that, that a teacher may figure out that there may be something going on. And at home, particularly if there are other kids in the home, they're the easy ones because they're not disruptive. They're, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to redirect them. They kind of handle things on their own. Maybe they don't get their stuff done or their teeth brushed or whatever, but they're not disruptive and they're not needing as much from, a, from an adult. And so they tend to sort of fly by because they kind of make our lives easier <laughs> in a way yeah. if you think about um, it. And it may show up as what seemed to be nuisance. How come I told you we have to get ready for school and you're sitting there reading and you aren't even dressed yet? Yeah. And that's yeah. the procrastination. But it, it, it only interferes in the logistics when you're trying to get out the door instead of interfering with your ability to, my ability as a, as a parent to get anything done because this mm -hmm. kid's always interrupting or needing me to go check on them in case they're getting into some trouble. Whereas the inattentive type, for the most part, and this is this is a sweeping generalization, of course, but the inattentive types, kids who only have inattentive, and most kids have a combination of the two, but the kids who only have inattentive ADHD are much more likely to be, to require less energy from the adults in their lives, mm -hmm. at least as younger kids. Um, so the... Uh, and and in my experience over 17 years of working with uh, children, parents, teens with ADHD, the, the particularly boys or girls, they tend to be more girls who are have the inattentive, but they're also very intelligent, and many boys do as well. So they kind of doubly fly under the radar. Um, uh -huh. They may be inattentive in class, but they make it up somehow. Um, they read afterwards, and I see certainly girls now in high school, they are bound and determined they are going to get the homework done. I think uh, many people with ADD develop kind of a perfectionistic tendency. That is, if I do everything perfectly, I'm not going to get criticized. And mm -hmm. sure. girls are just going to stick with it. So then they're finishing homework at midnight. They have to get up at yeah. 6 o'clock because of the absurd start times of high school. So then they're mm -hmm. sleep-deprived. They're yep. working all evening on 
homework so they don't have the social interaction because they can't be in clubs and one thing and another. Or they totally overload themselves by trying to do that also. Mm -hmm. And then they start their homework at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. And boys give up at 7.30. Heck, I'm not going to get this. And they go play video games or go play baseball or get into sports. Therefore, they're going to show up because their grades are down. And that, Yeah. Well, here's the other thing I would add is that there's a lot of co-morbidity with anxiety. And so part of it, mm-hmm. to some extent, depends on how much anxiety is present. You know, as a, as a girl growing up with undiagnosed ADHD, anxiety on some level was my friend. Because it's what got me to make to get that perfectionistic tendency to make right. sure I got that's, it done and to work hard. That's motivating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, too much anxiety is not healthy, but a little bit of anxiety was actually, uh, you know, what enabled me to navigate the ADD without knowing I had it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of energizing, and I don't like this, so I have to get it done so I don't feel anxious. Um, mm-hmm. And. Uh, Another place where the inattentive, and this is regardless, boys or girls, um, shows up in middle school, elementary school, there's been one teacher. The teacher usually says, don't forget to turn in your homework. Now, middle school, there are five teachers. Homework is due at different times, and nobody's reminding you it's beginning part of the year. This is where homework goes, or this is email address you send it to, whatever. So the organization piece and the planning of you have a book report due in two weeks. Oh, yeah, I've got to read the book. And that's thought of two days before it's due. Those kinds of things mm-hmm. show up more when you get to the, the middle school and that organization part, um, mm-hmm. which is difficult for anybody with ADHD no matter what age. Um, so often by somewhere in high school, girls may be identified or, again, totally missed. And unfortunately, schools usually say, oh, your grades are fine. You couldn't have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Accommodations because your grades are good and besides you're trying to do too many other things. Uh, stop doing your competitive Irish dancing or trying to be in the ballet or be a three-star. Or whatever it is that brings you joy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You can't have the joy part, but you'll obviously do the homework right. So so let's move on to the autism spectrum, um, which in uh, 2013, and now finally (laughs) percolating around in in clinical circles, the, a new definition in the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, otherwise known as DSM, the fifth edition, was more inclusive of many I guess, subtypes of autism. So this is where mm-hmm. spectrum disorder came from. And I, I know for myself the kind of classic picture of autism that many people have is that child who started to develop language and then all of a sudden reverted and is essentially non-communicative and off in their own world. And that's 
a real extreme, but there are many other people that there are more or less some pretty easy to identify, others a lot harder. Um, and it appears that there may be a different appearance in girls as far as behavior kinds of things than there are in boys. So the two main parts, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, particularly in this realm of what you might call high-functioning, although I think that's a misnomer, so I don't, I don't really want to go there, but, but kids who are on the spectrum but do not have that, that deeper classic sense of, of, mm-hmm. of disconnection from communication, the kids who are in some way functioning in the world um, but are not functioning at the level it's more likely for them. Yeah, they're not totally disconnected. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that disconnectedness um, is one of the main criteria is difficulty in social communication or social interaction. So it's not just communication verbally and saying, hello, how are you, the reciprocal exchange, um, but interactions um, so that not recognizing significance of emotions someone else has, not being able to really read uh, facial expressions, or not getting a joke. It's like, huh, it's a very literal interpretation often. And the nonverbal body language, they don't pick that up. And I'm thinking of some of the boys I uh, have seen with autism. They are they're kind of stiff, stiff formal. Uh, they can learn the reciprocal interaction, but it's still on a, there's a formal air to it. It's not casual. It's learned, not... Mm-hmm. Not natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other main thing, and this is one area where boys and girls seem to differ, um, is repetitive patterns of behavior or a rigidity in expecting things need to be the same. I have to have them the same or I'm going to have a meltdown. Um, mm-hmm. And... One boy uh, came in with parents, and he was doing a Rubik's Cube thing, and I think he solved 10 of them as we were (laughs) talking. And Mom said, this started two months ago, and before that, it was candles. I couldn't go down Mm -hmm. the aisle uh, that had candles in it in the store because he'd want me to buy two or three. He didn't ever light them. He just wanted candles. Or one younger boy, her parents remembered this later, that at age two, he would move a door back and forth and just look at the hinges like, how does this work? And way too much focus on that one, one kind of thing. Whereas girls, it doesn't tend to be as much things, but it may be social interactions or um, having friends or yeah maybe they want a certain kind of doll or they want a certain kind of book to read 
there's a rigidity there, though. Of, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm anxious. I don't like it when things are predictable. Right. I, I was going to say the rigidity is often in the expectation. Like once I have my mindset about how I think something's going to go, mm -hmm. that transition when it doesn't go the way I expect it to, and I think this is the case for both boys and girls mm -hmm. um, on the spectrum, that there's this, if I can't, I, it, it's an inability to be with the change from what's expected. Mm-hmm. The, that can be really, that can be, oh. they can really fixate on and have an extraordinarily difficult time emotionally navigating. I know one uh, mom said, I, I couldn't understand why when he was in preschool and you know, after the preschool session, gee, let's go to lunch with some of the other kids and moms and the kid had to have a fit. Because lunch you're home at noon, and you have a peanut butter and honey sandwich and milk. That's lunch, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you can't do anything different. Um, which is very confusing to parents. Of what's what's wrong here? Um, mm -hmm. And that's the kind of rigidity. One of the other things that uh, I think at one of those subtle clues um, is sometimes not so subtle, a hypersensitivity or a hypo, a low sensitivity to different stimuli, um, textures of clothes, uh, noise, and uh, like going to the mall or being in a classroom where kids are talking and there's a lot of stuff on the walls, so it's visual overwhelm, noise overwhelm. And that's where kids get more anxious, kids on the spectrum, and may melt down, which seems, what's going on? This is just regular classroom stuff. Um, have any parents in your experience commented on a child who doesn't, isn't sensitive to pain? It's kind of like pain is overrated. What's the deal? Yeah, very often that they don't experience pain in quite the same way. And you look at it as a parent very proudly and say it's a high pain threshold. And it's mm -hmm. actually because there's this disconnection from, from feeling it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's, there's a difficulty in connecting to and feeling a lot of sensations and emotions. So on the one hand, there's an overwhelm, from a sensory overwhelm that you just described. But on the other hand, um, it can also go the other direction to a lack of yeah. feeling of pain. Yeah, ignoring that emotion and being cold. I know there was one fellow in mm -hmm. college, and I went to college in Massachusetts where it snows. No snow on the ground pretty much from December through end of March. And he didn't wear shoes. He'd walk in barefoot yeah. from class to class. And we're thinking, how do you do that? And now, in retrospect, looking at many of his other behaviors, that was probably where it came from, just that mm -hmm. cold doesn't, doesn't bother. Yeah. So, yeah. again, in looking at girls' 
presenting differently, um, and I think this is looking at professional literature, this is just starting to be evident that, gee, there's a autism spectrum uh, disorders have a different appearance in girls than they do in boys, and uh, being able to see, okay, the rigidity, the fixating on things where the fixating for girls may be more friends and social interactions. And I think all these kids, even by four or five, they start to develop anxiety because they know they aren't like other kids. They aren't fitting in. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, I also think that what happens, particularly with girls, is that, you know, the thing that I noticed about families with kids with autism and girls, I've been, I've been doing a lot of work this year and the last year noticing where in my practice parents of complex kids where the diagnosis of autism was missed. And, you know, going back based on some of these clues and, and encouraging parents to go back and pursue a more thorough diagnosis because a lot of these kids may have been diagnosed before 2013, before the DSM-5 came out, when doctors, when physicians and providers had to choose between, say, ADHD and autism. They couldn't do both. Now that we know that they coexist in a lot of kids, some of these kids need to be reevaluated and we need to really understand the nuance of what's happening and what I've seen consistently is that these are often kids who the parents started struggling with something having to do with these kids very young, as early as preschool or before. And maybe they got a single diagnosis, maybe they got a diagnosis of anxiety or OCD or an ADHD or a Tourette's or a, a diagnosis that they kind of latch onto and they're treated for that diagnosis for years and years and years, and yet the treatment is never really fully supporting the family or the kid. Mm -hmm. But because they've got this diagnosis, there's not been anybody going back and saying, wait a minute, let's look at the bigger picture. Did we, is there something else going on? Is there something we missed? And in 100% of the cases where I've gone back to these parents and said, and encouraged them just to go be reevaluated, reassess now, Mm -hmm. All of those kids have been diagnosed with autism. Mm -hmm. And they're all girls, with one exception. One boy, the rest are all girls. Wow. And there was one family who I worked with them about 10 years ago, and I, I never forgot this one kid because she just, even in the realm of, of complex ADD girls, she was an outlier. And she was what I call a very complex kid. Mm -hmm. And I Found, I went back into my papers and I found the mom and I called her up when I was working on this presentation and and just said sort of how she's doing, how is she doing and asked her and talked to the mom and it, sure enough, it turned out she had all the signs and symptoms and was struggling in college and struggling socially and I mean there were all these other pieces that were very, very typical and you know, and the mom, and I said something to the mom about, you know, have you considered reevaluation? And the mom's response was, you know, I've really been, I've been wondering because her dad has autism and her uncle has autism and, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, 10 years later, this kid's now 19, 20 years old, and the mom is only now beginning to say, oh, yeah, maybe this does apply to her too. Yes. And unfortunately, I think many clinicians 
miss the signs of the autism spectrum may be there, or even ADHD, um, because as you say, mm -hmm. there's, oh, here's the diagnosis. This child's really anxious. You also do some anxiety things and mindfulness breathing and CBT and maybe some uh, medication. And yeah, that may address some of the anxiety, but it still doesn't look yet at the other uh, the other problems. And so I think true. And, and well, but the, the part of what happens is the clinicians. There, this information, this this, or what we know about these complex kids is changing so rapidly in the last mm -hmm. twenty years that oftentimes, if a clinician was educated, you know, say before twenty thirteen, they're going to have a whole different frame for framework for what to look for. Yes. Than, than the clinicians who are continuing their education. And, and, and so I, I do want to be careful that, that, the, that what I want to focus on here is the invitation to clinicians to broaden the view and, 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 and begin to look for more complex explanations for these very complex kids rather than, you know, to blame or hold accountable for what yeah. we've missed. Because when you've got very complex kids, Missing a diagnosis is more common than not. Yes, yes. And I think it's um, becoming very evident that very few people, for instance, have just ADHD. That is mm -hmm. probably if I told it, I could say maybe 10% of the people in my practice, yep, now I know I have ADD, I'm taking medication, I'm more productive. I've put together strategies as far as planning and I'm making an emphasis on getting good sleep and some exercise, and they're sailing along. Oh. But many others, something doesn't work. There's emotional stuff in there that may be emotional baggage <laughs> left from mm -hmm. you know, with ADD, undiagnosed ADD, but there's also anxiety. Mm -hmm. There's also autism spectrum, um, and those things haven't been identified as needing separate uh, attention. And I, I do think you're exactly right. If someone, if a clinician, their education, even up to um, certainly before the DSM-5 or even after, you go through your residency specialty training and this is what you see and how things are defined and the core of medical practice is continuing to learn, continuing to get new information and integrate that in your practice and as you get more experience you look at the information. Well there's so much information coming along that it's hard to pick up on all of it. You know, a pediatrician, for instance, in a general pediatrics practice, there are all kinds of things that are changing and moving forward, which is great, but staying up on all of them is difficult. And, yeah, ADHD is present in 8% of the kids they see, maybe more in terms of the ones who come in the office, but there are 90% that have a whole bunch of other things they have to keep up with. Mm -hmm. Then you add the complexity of 
the overlay of autism spectrum, which in that whole concept of this is a spectrum and some kids it's going and some people it's going to be more subtle. Um, it makes it real difficult. So I think the the perspective of an invitation to clinicians is an excellent one. Um, mm. And ones who are open to parents saying, gee, you know, I've been doing some reading or um, teacher noticed or a friend noticed that this and this, so I looked into it some more. There is one uh, of the various assessment tools, I guess I'll call them. There are the various ADHD scales, and there are ones for anxiety, and there are ones for depression. And now there's a specific one for looking at autism spectrum along with other complex issues. Um, so it, it's one way to get for a clinician and parents to get somewhat kind of a measure of how significant this is. Um, yeah, many kids are going to ignore the fact that it's time to get ready for school and they get doing something else. But when that's there, plus daydreaming, plus they can't remember things, plus they lose things, a whole bunch of things all the time, that more adds up to ADD. Yeah. Well, and, and what comes up as you're saying it, yeah. Sorry, what, what comes up as you're saying it, David, is that you've got, you know, one percentage of these kids that, that it adds up to ADD, and then there's this next layer, whatever that percentage is, that, that mm-hmm. it's, it goes beyond the ADHD to something more. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, these kids, that the, the, even the ADHD doesn't really explain the yeah. complexity of the behaviors that parents are experiencing. And, and I and I guess I what I want to take a stand for is that that's a very real experience, and that doesn't mean that parents are bad parents or providers are bad providers, but it means yes. that we're only now beginning to understand the depth of complexity for this next percentage of kids mm-hmm. that I, that are really dealing with so much more than just ADHD. Mm-hmm. And I think that the um, whether it's Parents bring up, boy, in my experience, this seems like more struggle than other friends whose kids have been diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. looks back and thinks, boy, this just isn't, we've gone through five different medicines and they've done some one yeah. thing or another. And it's more than just anxiety or ADHD. And there certainly is a tendency to, oh, we've identified this diagnosis. Um, and yeah, that's almost a common in medicine where you identify one diagnosis and you see, boy, that treatment didn't work. We have to go back and consider another one. And that's the part that clinicians may think, well, I don't, I don't see something else. Well, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to see it. Exactly. And I guess today has been Elaine Taylor Klaus, who's the founder of Impact Parents online virtual parent coaching groups. He's written three books and the latest one essential 
guide to raising complex kids really does put together a lot of things she's learned and thought about and worked with over a number of years. Her website is impactparents.com and I will have that website and the titles of her book in the information on the podcast. Elaine, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's always a pleasure to discuss things with you. Hi, thanks for having me, David. It's always a pleasure for me as well. I really enjoyed the opportunity. And and I just want to remind people listening that, that one step at a time, progress over perfection, we can make a difference. Mm-hmm. One step at a time. This is your host, David Pomeroy, host of ADHD Focus. So long. Mm-hmm.